Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week I'm joined by Owen Hathaway, Tribune's culture editor and author of many books, including his most recent Red Metropolis, Socialism and the Government of London. Today he joins me to talk about municipal socialism, regional and class inequality in the UK and the future of the Labour Party under Keir Starmer. As always, a shout out to our amazing patrons. We've now reached the crucial threshold of £1,000 in subscriptions per month, which means we're able to pay the salary of our producers. But if we want to expand even further, we're going to need more help. If you've been considering becoming a patron for a while, but haven't gotten around to it, please consider doing so now. Just hit pause and head over to patreon.com slash a world to win pod. If you become a patron, you'll get access to exclusive content, including the full hour-long episode this week and full-length interviews with figures like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, as well as a chance to influence the future direction of the show. If you want to support the show in another way, please do give us a rating on iTunes and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A big thank you to the Lippmann Miliband Trust for awarding us the grant funding we've needed to bring you these episodes. You can follow them on Twitter at Lippmann Miliband. And another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. Now here is Owen Hathaway on the government's response to the deepening economic crisis in the UK. Hello Owen Hathaway and thank you for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing? Ah, not too bad. It's uh, it's a delightfully grey afternoon in South London. It certainly is. It's uh, it's great to have you on the show. So we're going to start, as always, by chatting about some news stories for this week. Um, and we're going to start by talking about Joy of Joy's The Spending Review. So we've had a public sector pay freeze. There's some leeway for NHS workers and low-paid workers, cuts to overseas aid, and a, a levelling up fund for uh, local infrastructure. A lot of people have said this, but it seems kind of tailor-made for the now blue wall in the north. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean... Anything that involves public sector pay freeze isn't actually that big um, a, 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 a bung for the, the, the you know the the small smaller towns of the yeah, north Midlands. Um, I, 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 it sort of makes the right noises that I think sort of please the the particular people in those areas that are most likely to vote conservative. But whether it has particularly good long term effects there, I think is more doubtful. Yeah, I mean, I think the. Um, concurrent releases about the state of the economy would suggest that uh, that is probably going to be the bigger battle that the Conservatives had to have to fight in the coming years. Let me just bring this up because it is, yeah, so the economy set to contract by 11.3% in 2020, which is staggering. Unemployment is going to reach 7.5%. And of course, you know, we already know that structural unemployment is higher in, in some of the regions and actually certain boroughs of London than in places like the southeast and uh, and and wealthier parts of London so that's going to kind of exacerbate some of these inequalities as well that seems like the biggest challenge that this government's going to be facing but there is this 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 leveling up fund and I'm unclear as to what this leveling up fund is actually going to get mm. get spent on um I mean they, these things have been happening for a long time now and they usually sort of result in things like you know, Northern Rail getting some new trains that are actually the yeah. ones from the Thameslink upgrade, you know, sort of things like that where, you know, that they, they, they make a terrible thing very slightly better. Mm. 
which was very needed with those horrible pacer trains that Northern yeah. had, yeah. which have now thankfully been replaced. Yeah, I mean, that was incredible that those they lasted awesome. for that long. I think they were, yeah. it would just be a sort of emergency temporary measure, as I remember in the early 80s, for about like, <laughs> to last about a couple of years, literally just like sawing off part of a bus and sticking it. <laughs> this is literally what, it, what they were. I know, I know. And then lasted for 40 years? Yeah. I mean, no, I know it's mad. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I, I know what you mean. It is, um, it is all going to depend on what this gets spent on. And I know, so I, I had Andy Burnham on last week, actually, and I know that, yeah, if it's all kind of directed by central government, it might end up being spent on kind of, you know, big things that they can shout about rather than actually things that are, um, things that are really needed. Well, so. Yeah. Sort of faster trains to get them in and out of London. I think a lot of this. Yeah, time. yeah. That has been the sort of thing that people have been have been more interested in, or I guess yeah. sort of faster trains in and out of Manchester, given how much of the strategy has been sort of making that into a sort of miniature London. Yeah. Right. The next story that we have um, is from Labourist, and it's battle over Corbyn Whip intensifies as legal process begins. So, I mean, this is, you know, I don't want to spend too long talking about this. And I mean, there are genuine questions as to how this has been handled on the Corbyn side, certainly. But I think it's quite clear this has become, you know, basically uh, the subject of what is now a a proxy factional war within the Labour Party, where Keir Starmer is, uh, is using this to just really attempt to kind of destroy the left. I'm wondering if you, I certainly had, you know, an idea that this is something that he might seek to do if he got a kind of a convincing win and with this and with young labor it certainly seems like starmer is is very effectively destroying the legacy of corbynism and that the you know the kind of failure to build up any real institutional power is what has allowed you know a five-year-long project to basically be undone in less than a year yeah, I mean, the, 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 you know, one can understand the motivations at the time on things like, you know, gutting the democracy review, not going for open selection and so forth. Mm. One can kind of go, yes, yes, you may have done that in good faith, but I think it's long past time to acknowledge that the, that, that was an enormous mistake mm. and has enabled that project to be, to be kind of cut to pieces very, very quickly. I suppose the thing that always sort of intrigues me about this, if we're kind of treating this purely at the kind of, the kind of factional angle, is the thing that everyone always says about divided parties don't win elections, which I think yeah. is absolutely true. Like, yeah. and you know that that it was shown, I think, obviously very impressively by by Johnson basically decimating the Remain wing of the Tory Party, kind of humiliating them and expelling them en masse. And it was only after that that he was managed to he managed to kind of create that juggernaut that that crushed us all last mm. year. And I think. In some ways, this is what's probably going on in the heads of Starmer and some of his advisors, is that, you know, that in order to kind of create a coherent party that could win an election, that kind of the unity that he talked about in the election campaign, people wrongly interpreted that as unity between the left and the right, as opposed mm. to unity like the Tory party that went into that election in December, which had been completely unified by the destruction of one of its wings. And that's that's what they, I think they want to do. The, the question of it is, is that once they've done that in terms of personnel, what do they then stand for? What do they use that machine that they've made to to to, to, to actually do and stand for? And on that, I cannot make head nor tail 
really. I mean, the thing that people often seem to talk about, particularly those that are more sympathetic to it, is that there'll be a kind of maintenance of some of the kind of anti-austerity economics of the Corbyn years and everything else will go. But they'll still be they'll still be standing on nationalising the railways, basically. Mm. It seems to me like, you know, there's that problem, certainly. And I, you know, I think if if that more charitable interpretation is true, the idea that once Starmer has kind of, you know, unified and in inverted commas the party and decides to hand some scraps to uh, to what's left of the left by implementing these kind of, you know, relatively social democratic policies that he won't also be eviscerated by the media for doing so is very wishful thinking. But I think the other problem is just that it's very easy to forget that Labour has lost a lot of elections and lots of other kind of, you know, nominally social democratic parties have lost a lot of elections since the financial crisis. And a big part of that has been losing votes on their left. And people kind of underestimate. I don't know why. I always find it really curious how the kind of commentary about voters is split between those voters who are kind of seen as like real voters who Mm. don't really take any interest in politics. And then the kind of fake voters who are like actually on Twitter and like engaged in things and kind of uh, engaged in campaigning and movements. But there are a lot of those people who are very passionate about the Corbyn campaign and losing like all of them, or even a big portion of them, and actually those who weren't really involved but were somewhat sympathetic, would be really very, very problematic for Starmer, wouldn't it? I mean, I think so. But I mean, I suppose lots of this comes from the fact that, and you know, we all kind of told ourselves, and even that BBC documentary that was made about various MPs during that election, we all told ourselves that 2017 was because of us. You know, that there mm. was momentum, people out on the streets, you know, stamping around you know, Canterbury or Eltham and getting the vote out. And that's very much how it seemed at the time. And then we had basically much the same movement, except we were all much colder and much more desperate at last, last, this time last year. And it didn't really seem to to do that thing. I mean, I think it, it, it probably made it less bad than it would otherwise be, but it kind of blew a hole in that thing and made it much easier for them to say, well, you people don't matter. We can just screw you over and, you know... Um, that will actually help us get into power. And I think it's that it's that second part. It's like, okay, acknowledging that we can't win an election by ourselves is probably quite sensible, given we tried it and mm. it failed. Um, but then there's that second point of, therefore, we don't need you and we will publicly humiliate you, which I think is very, very rash indeed. Yeah. Um, particularly given a huge amount of the kind of metropolitan vote that is now absolutely monopolised by Labour, was in fairly recent memory going to the Lib Dems, going to the Greens, mm. or not voting at all. Yeah, I mean, that does seem to be a big, big part of this question as well, which is a big part of the kind of secular problem that Labour was facing was just the fact that working class voters were dropping out of the electorate en masse steadily from really 1997 onwards. And sure, that kind of that trend had been arrested in recent years, but that does seem to be you know, just a really deep problem for the Labour Party if like a large chunk of its of its potential support can't be relied upon to vote. Yeah. How, you know, that it's potentially that the Tories just have a kind of permanent majority of registered voters. I, I, I don't know. I think like so much in this, I think they've got really high on their own supply. And mm. that really worries me. And And the kind of myths of the Labour Party which we didn't do enough to puncture in those five years, have come back with enormous kind of strength. You know, the the kind of idea that 
somehow like Neil Kinnock was a successful leader because he <laughs> left despite losing the 87 and 92 elections, the second of mm. which was considered absolutely unlosable. Like, you know, the, 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 they really do seem to be believing their own bullshit and mm. surrounding themselves with yes men. And I, I, I can't given, and I think actually they could have played a much cleverer game of kind of going to the movement and splitting it mm. the way that people like Laura Parker and Paul Mason yeah. were kind of, were kind of brought into the project, Simon Fletcher and so on, were kind of brought into it, suggested this is what they were going to do. And they've very rapidly abandoned that for, for a project of, of, of humiliation. And I, I, I don't really understand it. Mm, it does seem like a very zero-sum game. Either they have to be completely and utterly successful and, you know, completely decimate the left from the party, in which case, you know, that does create questions about the electoral viability of the project, but it certainly means that those people who have been on that as part of that project will retain their positions of power. But if they fail to kind of completely destroy the left, then there is a long-term question about the viability of both um Starmer's leadership and the what seems to be now kind of dominance of parts of the the right and the and the soft left over the party. Um, the soft left even have particular dominance in this. No, true. Sort of amoebic thing that I think they will be often the people that will go onto Twitter and in good faith defend things that are not done in good faith. <laughs> uh, you know, the the, the the kind of it's an awful phrase which I apologise for using, but they often have a sort of useful idiot role. Right. Whereas. You know, a lot of the people that seem to be driving this are just the worst ghouls of yeah. the party. Mm. <laughs> you know, re- regain their iron grip. But, yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not a particularly edifying spectacle. But I suppose it's uh, it's on us to kind of continue to try and, and fight back against that for as long as we physically can. And this new battle over young labour as well seems to be uh, something that's really going to hopefully rally the troops. So... Yeah, anyone who's listening, make sure that, you know, we're uh, we're on these questions and, and really pushing in any way that we can. I, I was talking about this yesterday with my, with, with my dad, who was uh, very active in the Labour Party Young Socialists in the 70s and 80s. Mm. He pointed out that the destruction of Labour Party Young Socialists and its replacement of Young Labour, among other things, launched the career of Mike Gapes. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is, this is the future that's ahead of us. Oh, my God, that's hilarious. Right, we're going to talk now about a story that you brought up and mentioned you wanted to talk about, which is about Grenfell. Now, we have a story here, which is just one of so many to come out of the inquiry so far, which is cladding firms stretch the truth on fire safety. So basically, the company who produced the cladding knew it wasn't safe for high-rise buildings in particular. Mm. It seems like every day there is a new story about a new element of this with some organisation that was somehow involved just completely mm, yeah. and utterly screwing up, either dropping the ball or being kind of openly and, and overtly irresponsible, basically. Mm, yeah. uh, but it also, you know, doesn't seem to be kind of drawing people's attention in the way that's perhaps warranted. So, yeah, I mean, what are your views about the inquiry so far? And do you think anything real is going to come out of it? I mean, it's torn the lid off a thing that, uh, you know, a lot of it I could have anyone that knows anything about about construction and architecture and housing knew that it had got very 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 bad mm. but i don't think anyone quite realized that you'd see things like this of sort of like entire email threads mysteriously deleted and people mm. boasting about the lack of safety and boasting about the cuts they brought in you know just really barbaric stuff mm. um, but i mean the industry's absolutely been full of this for ages 
And one of the things that the system of contracting that is used for any kind of project, like, you know, like the recladding of a tower block, one reason why it's so incredibly complex is precisely to make it very, very opaque who is actually responsible. I mean, the amount of contractors involved in Grenfell is now being being made clear is absolutely labyrinthine. Like, it's incredibly difficult for anyone to work out who's responsible for each bit. And I think one of the clarifying things the inquiry is doing is showing that even in a system like that that's designed to spread responsibility, you can still actually prove, I think, that, that, that people are responsible for at best, unlawful killing, I think I would uh. one of the verdicts to be. But the complexity of that, I think, partly it's because I think the you know, news reporting is terrible, but I think also that complexity is one reason why people haven't understood what's going on in the way that, for instance, when it was reported that, you know, that the fire service buggered it up. That mm. would be a big story in the BBC. Ah, fire service buggered it up. But of course, the fire service buggered it up because they had absolutely no idea that, that a fire on a tower could do that. Nobody mm. knew it was possible. Like, it was, you know, uh, so unheard of. And that's why they still use the advice for what you do in a tower block fire, which is mm. you know, in your flat, because this is, you know, basically what stops people from getting killed in tower block fires. And it's been used for the 70 or 80 years that tower blocks have existed. So there you could kind of blame the, the fire brigade, you could blame the unions, you know, it's very, very easy to kind of work out, ah, well, this is a fire management thing and you can see who screwed up. And now we're in the second phase and we can see that, you know, which goes on to how this thing actually happened. You're dealing with this kind of incredibly hard to understand system that is deliberately hard to understand. And I think that explains a lot of why people aren't really paying attention, aside from the usual thing about Grenfell, which is people don't pay attention for the same reason they didn't pay attention for so long about Hillsborough, which is that they don't really consider the people that died there to be fully human, but that's it. That's another argument for another time. Well, there's also an element, I think, of kind of willful misunderstanding in the sense that people don't really want to believe that the government and elements of the the private sector that the government is uh, using for procurement actively doesn't care about people dying. That's just not something. I think when you try and bring that up, people kind of have all sorts of very kind of visceral responses to that idea because people want to believe that the government exists to protect them. I mean, certainly they didn't think it was going to happen insofar as, you know, that, that uh, it hadn't up to that point. But that doesn't, you know, that's, that's not to exculpate them in any way. Yeah. I certainly don't think they expected it. But they were aware it was possible. And at the back of their mind, you know, they may have been aware that it might happen. I mean, one of the things that people haven't really realised properly is that there are dozens of these. Yeah. And those where there's, you know, which have been public projects, usually the recladding of 60s tower blocks, um, there has been money provided um, to take the cladding off. I mean, the same unbelievably corrupt industry is going to be them recladding them. Um, but anyway, mm. um, but the, the um, it's actually a lot of the private blocks that were built in the kind of new labour years, which are covered in this stuff and where there isn't mm. public budgets or the out. Um, there's a particular um, cluster of blocks on Deptford Creek. Um, I think they say they're officially in Greenwich in that way that estate agents do, um, <laughs> which, uh, you know, among some of the cheapest housing in London now because mm. they're lethal. <laughs> there's a right. huge amount of that about. And I, and, and that kind of realisation that the kind of refurbishment programme on 1960s social housing and the kind of rebuilding programs of the new labour years turned out to be so 
publicly dangerous is a thing I really think people haven't properly come to terms with. Mm. I mean, there was a, you know, uh, I I don't want to praise the article because it was terrible, but there was a point made in Andrew O'Hagan's piece on the Uh Grenfell, which I think was a, a morally indefensible piece, but it made the entirely true point that this could have happened anywhere. Mm. I mean, there was a fire in a block of student housing in, in, in Bolton last year, which, um, you know, luckily didn't kill anyone, but, you know, had a very similar technology used. So um, there could easily be more of these. Mm. And the degree to which that industry needs to be, I wouldn't say just not, not only kind of better regulated, but needs to be kind of broken apart is, is something that people are going to going to come to understand with time, I hope. Mm. Um, We're also going to talk now about uh, James Butler's piece in the LRB, Failed Vocation. Um, Now, this is a classically brilliant James Butler piece, which I think everyone should read um, and take time to read. Uh, We we obviously are not going to be able to go into all the detail, and particularly about the kind of merits and demerits of each book, because I think that's been done to death on the internet. But one of the core points in there about the balance between kind of extra parliamentary and electoral struggles, which does touch on the books in that they're both kind of, as Butler says, court histories um but this point this kind of tension also comes out i think in in your book which we're going to talk about in a bit um do you think that it was kind of that it was inevitable that the the project as butler calls it became focused on this kind of on these westminster games i remember being constantly baffled at the kind of ridiculous spectacle of people trying to kind of rouse up mass movements over like thing parliamentary you know anachronisms like proroguing and judicial battles over over treaty interpretations but I was kind of in the minority at, at that point. So I'm wondering what, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, sort of going back to the points on democracy review, I do think, again, that those that were enthusiastic for, you know, um, chasing Boris Johnson through the courts in the House of Lords had good reasons at the time. And I think we can now look at that strategy calmly and go, that wasn't such a great idea. <laughs> and do that without rancor. I don't think it yeah. involved anyone selling out or anything like that. I think that's that, that that's really or anyone having their wallet inspected or whatever. Kind of. <laughs> Certainly a lot of the people in Labour leadership um, did it in good faith and they were wrong. Mm. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the, you know, that the, the kind of pivot towards, you know, a different position on Brexit and on, on the withdrawal agreement, which mm. I think would have had the benefit of not causing the exact disaster that happened. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't have caused something else, and it doesn't mean that they would have, it would have meant that we would have won because I think from about kind of early 2019 onwards it was all over in retrospect and I think that's one mm. of the things that 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 that, that James yeah. brings out is that it now seems that we were defeated a long time before we were actually defeated which not being as well connected as as, as some people I didn't really know <laughs> um, I thought very much in November yeah. December that we could we could retry the trick. And I was speaking to people in the few days before who had all been out canvassing and very much thought they could repeat the trick, not to win, but to stop them getting a majority. Mm. And that's, you know, accounts for a huge amount of the shock that we all still, I think, feel. I suppose it kind of makes sense that they're about court politics and that the thing died in the court, right? Yeah. But at the same time, it's very suffocating. Um, Just before I I started this call, I, I noted that I'd got a sort of um annoyed tweet from owen jones thinking that sort of uh, suggesting that i was putting words into his mouth about some of these things but 
I don't think I was. Um, I do think there's something about these things where they suck out a lot of the life of something like this and you don't get a sense of mm. it as a movement in any of the vitality yeah of the actual movement no i agree if i think now now this thing is over of the times in which i was excited by it yeah the times in which i actually thought we're gonna win or i'm proud to be part of this thing it was usually a world transformed event yeah it was something along those lines, you know, or it was the the, the 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 rallies during the abortive coup or what have you. It was these moments in which, you know, there was sort of hope and enthusiasm and ideas and there was this real genuine ferment. I remember going to a Southampton transformed event about four months before the election. The, you know, in my hometown and I... I, I think I, I was there too, actually. Yeah, I was incredibly emotional about it to be honest yeah um, partly because it was my my, my, my hometown um, but partly also just I had not, not seen anything like it since the poll tax when I was nine you know that, and no one else in the room had seen anything like it since the poll tax and you know you had in the room the the old kind of T and G people and unite you know from from the docks and the factories of Southampton and you had the young Corbynites and the kind of intellectuals and the you know the panels on 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 trans rights and so forth and it all mm. happening in the same space and all being very comradely and that was what it was all about for me and the feeling not just that that movement existed but that that movement had a had a stab at power mm. and I don't really I don't get a sense from any of this stuff of that. And I think a lot of people want to put that back in its box. They want us all to forget yeah. that thousands of people would have come to an event of political discussion and political education. The moments of collective joy, yeah. Yeah, they want they want us to forget that that ever happened. Mm. And in that, what's kind of funny is the way that, um, and this is this has nothing to do with, with with someone like Owen, who I think would regard it as appalling. The way that you know that that the, there hasn't been going back to the point about bringing in like Laura Parker and Paul Mason and Simon right. Fletcher early on with Starmer, that I th- when I kind of thought they'd pick us off, and one of the lines you th- I thought they'd pick us off on is bringing in what kind of squawk box type people used to call the woke left. <laughs> you know, Navarra, New Socialist, yeah. well-transformed, autonomy, you know, these sorts yeah. of, of organisations, and bring them in in order to kind of, you know, kind of neutralise a sort of unite or lexit left. And actually, as you can see by the actions on Young Labour, who are absolutely representatives of that, you know, huge scare quotes, woke left, that they hate them just as much. They hate them just as much as the squat box. And they will cry them just as much as they will, you know, kind of like 65-year-old cranks. Um, And there is this feeling that, you know, for, for them, we are all the same adversary. Um, which could in some ways be quite politically clarifying in the same way that the kind of the spy cops builds and so forth, that all of yeah. the divides that people like Jeremy Gilbert and his interesting, but I think wrong piece on this dividing into the kind of orthodox left and the radical left. Yeah. What you had there was the orthodox and radical left very much united on the point of human rights principle, which mm. the soft left and the kind of human rights lawyer left um, made excuses for throughout. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's something in there both in that point about kind of forgetting the moments of collective joy and also on that point about unity, which has been made so much harder by the fact that it has been impossible for people to meet. 
Um, I think, you know, yeah. looking back on this time, the, 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 our inability to kind of come together to experience collective sadness following the collective joy mm. um, and really kind of, you know, talk about these things, discuss these things, realize that we are literally all being, you know, attacked in the same way and trying to build something out of that collective experience has been really really damaging because you know we've all basically been stuck in our homes and like only able to interact with each other on twitter in a very adversarial way that has been at a time we should be trying to kind of lessen them yeah it's been the worst possible time and, and and it has made arguments that would otherwise be quite comradely seem tetchier than they are yeah. like, i don't regard owen jones as a political opponent in any way whatsoever yeah i, I think he knows that and i think a lot of people need to Mm. And and I think he also needs to kind of realise that people like <laughs> new socialists and don't necessarily regard him as a political opponent. Yeah. A lot of criticism that comes out, you know, just kind of becomes really obsessive really, really quickly. And that's the thing that happens to all defeated left movements is that you yeah, know there's nothing else you can do. Mm. Um, and we really have to kind of learn from that a bit and learn from the fact that everyone else has ended up doing this. Yeah. Or it all goes bad at Meinhof. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> anyway, we're moving on to uh, the main part of the show now. Um, and I'm going to ask you the same question I ask all of my guests, which is, how did you become a socialist? Unfortunately for me, it was a bit like it's a bit like asking a Catholic how they became a Catholic. <laughs> I didn't really have a choice. I was sort of raised in the faith. And you kind of, I think, get a choice about which version of the faith you you choose to espouse. Yeah. So obviously, it's no 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 great secret that you know that that like like Owen Jones, and um, both of my parents are very active and militant. Yeah. And my father drifted away from it. My mum is still very much part of its sort of continuity wing. Um, yeah. But you know, all of their kids are socialists in one way or another, and you can't really. In a way, as far yeah. as there was never really a choice um, <laughs> the kind of environment you were in. And so the choice was what kind of socialist you end up thinking of yourself as. So obviously I ended up not being a Trotskyist, although I'm so completely kind of like formed by it as a way of thinking that, you know, I, I sort of owe it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am not one. And, yeah, it was just, it's a really, really boring answer because I didn't have any kind of moral moment of, of conversion. It's a perfectly, perfectly good answer. It was just, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about your book now, Red Metropolis, which is an excellent read. I'd really encourage people to buy because um, it's just, it is real. It is a real pleasure to read, actually. And yeah, I guess just start by walking us through the period that you're writing about. Maybe give us some anecdotes about the GLC and give us some kind of context. Give us the the hard sell for the book. (laughs) The book was an attempt to answer the question which some people appear to find strange and paradoxical, that London voted in more or less exactly the same way in 2019 as it did in 2017. Mm. And to explain the fact that on current polling, Sadiq Khan is going to be the first mayor ever to win in the first round in the London mayoral elections. There has been no shift to the right in London whatsoever since um pretty much since the kind of early 2010s you know since since the second election of boris johnson as mayor i think it has just stepped further and further to the left Mm. um and lots of people were kind of interpreting this in this kind of like this is this is strange and problematic and it must be bad the fact that lee or blythe didn't vote labor and peckham did is 
in some way a problem to be explained. And of course, it's not a problem to be explained. Actually, the constituency I'm sitting in right now, Campwell and Peckham, has been Labour for 90 years. Mm. You know, the inner London is every bit as much a heartland of the Labour movement and the Labour Party as the North East or the South Yorkshire Coalfield or South Wales. Mm. Right? Um, it's actually more historically, and apology to Scousers, it's actually more of a heartland historically in Liverpool. It's more of a heartland historically than Manchester. Mm. Certainly a long way more of a, of, a, of a heartland than the Midlands, which um, usually kind of oscillates politically every few years. It was just ahistorical. And so uh, it kind of actually grew out of a new Left Review essay, which was about something completely different, which was an account of kind of neoliberalism in London over the last 20 years and the fact that it's mainly been administered from the left. So basically, the kind of in short, the fact that the, the Shard was built by Ken Livingston, right. to put it very, very bluntly, and how baffling that should be, given that he was before 2015 by far the most successful explicitly socialist politician in Britain after Neuron Bevan. And that, you know, the left should have kind of buggered things up in London quite so much, was kind of what they wanted to talk about. And then it became something else, because I wanted to tell a story about municipal socialism in London, Um, where it came from and how it grew and how it actually is in some ways still quite enduring. It's created a legacy which is which still in, you know, literal bricks and mortar um, stands in a lot of places and, and, and is a kind of a thing that a lot of people kind of feel that legacy and, and, and are very defensive of it. The amount of people that's come up in the last kind of two weeks with like their own GLC stories from the 80s. Yeah. Like this was a huge social movement and the degree to which it's kind of not really stayed in the historical memory in the way that like, Neil Kinnock's ridiculous speech in 1985 has stayed in the historical memory as, I think, an enormous indictment of the PPE course at the University of Oxford. <laughs> of which I am also a, an enormous indictment as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think that uh, that that stuff about the GLC was really um, some of the stuff I, I enjoyed most about, about reading the book. Um, but you've brought me on to the more controversial stuff, which I, I want us to get into now. Mm. A part of the the online discourse it will be two weeks ago when this comes out, but Ash Sarkar tweeted some stats from your book um, saying, Home Ministry in Barrow, uh, 74% in Hackney, 20%. There's more to the story of regional inequality than London equals rich elites. Now, this started a wild <laughs> debate, as, as you obviously know. Yeah. And it seems to me that I, I, I didn't weigh in <laughs> as something as it was. Um, it seems to me that this is kind of obviously true and that the dominant schema we use to define class completely fails to account for the impact of asset ownership. And, you know, that that was a, a really important part of the neoliberal bargain that's been struck in many different parts of the world mm. uh, over the last 40 years. And indeed, which was kind of central to the political economy of the, the pre-crisis period. Actually, there's another book on this um, called The Asset Economy by Konings, Adkins and Cooper, which is really good on this question of asset ownership and class. But it also seemed like a bit of an oppression Olympics thing. <laughs> if you're a kind of you know you're a kid in Grimsby you've had a pretty bad education you don't expect to go to university your job prospects are pretty not great you maybe don't even expect to actually leave the town does it really make sense to think that this kid's class position is wildly different to someone in Hackney who's in the same position but in the private rented sector though maybe has a better education as a legacy of the London challenge yeah it just seems like a bit of a fruitless battle 
Um, and I think it's yeah. really a question of different forms of the way that that, that that class is experienced and the different ways that neoliberalism is experienced. But I think that the, the, the crucial point on that that I really can't be stressed enough is that the kid in Grimsby is not voting Tory. His granddad well, is yeah. voting Tory. <laughs> and that really is is the crux of it. It's that his grandparents are voting Conservative. He is either voting Labour or not voting. Mm. And that's where the dog is buried, I think. You know, that that, that there is... A particular, and this can be taken too far into some really silly directions, I think, and I sort of try and protect against this a little bit. Um, but I don't think that's what Ash was doing at all. I think she was simply pointing out a a fact. And what do we do with this fact? And, you know, one of the ways we, we, which one can nuance that fact is what the value of that, of, of that thing is. Yeah. So the 20% of people in Hackney that own their own home are paper millionaires. The 74% of people in Barrow and Furness that own their own home are very much not paper millionaires. So the asset that you have is, is a completely different one. It's still, it's still home ownership in some way, but it's, it's simply not serving the same function. And it all, for me, goes back to actually that great line, which I believe comes from Michael Heseltine in Chaps, where he talks about how giving some address to students in Oxford, I think, and says, you know, the Conservative Party stays in power in a democracy by giving people just enough. Mm. And that 74% home ownership and power and fairness, that's just enough. You know, someone was saying, oh, what if Daniel Blake had owned his own house? You know, would it not be? Like Daniel Blake, by definition, wouldn't have owned his house, own house or he wouldn't have been on universal credit. But it's quite possible that Daniel Blake's dad owned his own house. Because of the fact that it was a house where it was, he wouldn't be able to remortgage that house and then bail him out of having to be on universal credit if you kind of follow, follow my drift. It doesn't, yeah. what, what it does is it makes a group of people sort of comfortable in a bleak way, you know, that you are, yeah. you watch the place you are in decline and decline and decline. You know, you watch your kids and your grandkids leave that town and go to somewhere else, usually to the nearest city rather than to London, you know, going to Manchester or to Liverpool rather than rather than to London, although obviously that happens a lot too. And you you are kind of cushioned from the worst by the fact that you own that home. And that doesn't that's not the same as saying that you therefore have something particularly wonderful or or, or an investment or something you can play the stock market or whether whatever, which is the case with home ownership in London and in the southeast. But you are cushioned. You are given a kind of, to use sort of Will Davies' phrase, a sort of shadow welfare state mm. that is generationally bound, which is, is created by pension funds, by the triple lock, and by home ownership. And they successfully insulate a group of people, not even insulate them from poverty, because obviously there's a huge pension of yeah. poverty, but they insulate them from the extreme instability that their kids and their grandkids, particularly their grandkids, have to have to live through. That extreme instability of housing and of employment, of not knowing, you know, what your next job is going to be, of not knowing if you'll ever be able to own your own home or rent somewhere securely or, or ever have social housing. And because of the fact that this has been so poorly reported and, so, and you know, that the right-wing media has such a grip on that generation, they simply don't understand, I think, the fact that this is happening in a lot of cases. I've lost count of the amount of people that particularly at the end of 2019 were talking about arguments of their grandparents. They simply did not get that this was happening. They said, well, why can't you get a job? You know, why can't you get a council flat? Why can't you buy a house? And it's like, there aren't any. That doesn't yeah. percolate down to people. But it's not an argument about privilege. There's a, a lovely tweet by Pete Mitchell about, you know, what a shame that the Northern Independence Campaign should um, 
you know, should have ended up exhibiting chippiness and a lack of sense of humour. These are not the qualities of my people. But, okay. you know, there was an element of, I think, people failing to understand that explaining that something works in different ways in different areas is not necessarily talking about privilege. Because in yeah. terms of obvious things like like infrastructure and education, London does vastly better than the rest of the country. Like, that's incontrovertible. In much the same way, you know, being able to get on a better bus it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to be going to be poor. And it sort of shows, I think, a kind of degree of, uh, of sort of support for trickle-down economics on the left that I wouldn't necessarily have expected. Yeah, I think, you know, this conversation, and we actually had a debate about this on Twitter once, I think we there did. is like there is an important distinction to be made here because I think often there are two conversations that are being had here that tend to get conflated. One of them is about class dynamics in advanced capitalist societies in the context of a dramatic expansion in asset ownership. Mm. The other is the question of kind of how the left wins power. And on the first question, I mean, it's basically impossible to understand what's going on in terms of the shifting class nature of of societies like the UK without contextualizing it internationally because you know you have mm-hmm. if you're looking at an objective analysis of class region and the relations of production you can see the emergence of a kind of a professional managerial class that's tasked with managing a production process that takes place around the world b an asset owning class which has largely been able to kind of acquire those assets based on a transfer of um, of capital from the global south to the global north before the financial mm-hmm. crisis, uh, which you know allowed a kind of bubble in the in the financial and, and real estate sectors to go on much longer than it otherwise might have had, you know, like basically kind of Chinese savings being used to provide mortgages to uh, to American subprime borrowers. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be able to understand that on a global level, and you have to be able to understand that actually this very thin globally class of asset owners and professional managerial class members um, is nevertheless a significant portion of the societies of countries like the US and the UK. And that that kind of really does shift the sociology of these countries in a way that makes it difficult to talk about what it means to be working class and what it means to be middle class. Um, and I think that's definitely true and, and really very a very important kind of uh, kind of analysis to undertake. But then there's also the question of kind of how you build power, right? Yeah. And these things often get conflated because there's this sense that, right, well, Labour has to build power by winning working class votes and people who own their own homes and are in the professional managerial class aren't on these definitions working class. But there's also here this problem of the geographical nature of how you know our, our voting system works in the sense that unless we are able to do actually the real problem here, which is kind of bring, as you said, you know, the, the kid from Grimsby who doesn't vote, bring those people back into the electorate, you have to win votes from homeowners in some parts of the country. So, yeah, I think there's a, there's a problem there and that those two conversations get conflated. Yeah, there are. And I, and I think in many ways, I'm trying with this book to have a different conversation because I feel... I was trying to provide a sort of optimistic program for what we can do in a situation in which we're not going to win a national election. <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, because I don't think we have much chance of winning in 2024. I'd be delighted if we did. Yeah, I even think if, even if Sir, Sir Ham wins it, I'll still be delighted. Like, I, <laughs> I want to see those people destroyed. I hate them more than I can possibly express. And that is a genuine difference, actually, between the right of the Labour Party and the left. We do actually want the Labour Party to win. Yes, we do. And, and, and you know, I, I find the current leadership very dislikable, but, 
you know, compared to um, <laughs> the party of Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, they're, they're fairly yeah. small fry. But I don't really think it's going to happen. And I think that there is a, there, are, there are kind of different conversations I think we should be having in different places. So the Parliamentary Labour Party and the Labour Party Central Office has to have its conversations about how it's going to win those people. The left needs to have its conversations about how to defer resources and power to people in those places yeah. Um, so that they can do it in, in a way that isn't about, you know, um, be a bit more racist to win over the old the old folk. Yeah. But instead, you know, the way that, that you kind of strengthen the left in Bolsover is by strengthening the left in Bolsover, not by people in Manchester or Liverpool or, or Bristol or London feeling bad yeah. about themselves. Or worse than that, kind of going down to the countryside like Narodniks to kind of, you know, mobilise people <laughs> of Bolsover. Like, you know, I, 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 I think that's got to be... That's got to be a thing there. And that's where things like the community organising unit, which I expect to be yeah. dismantled, would be crucial. And the sort of things that people on the soft level, like Alex Sobel, were absolutely right straight after that election to go, right, this is the this is the front. Mm. You have to be community organisers. Yeah. Whereas for those of us in big cities, of which pretty much everywhere of a population of over a quarter of a million people, apart from the potteries, has mostly Labour MPs and has a Labour council. Like we have the cities in much the same way the Democratic Party always has the cities in the US. We now have a system in the UK where Labour always has the cities in England and Wales. And mm. my feeling is that the, the people in those areas are faced with a different question. Their question is not how do we win over you know the red wall that was invented by sophologists last autumn. Um, you know the question is not. What does Labour do to win power? And I think it's too many people on the left got themselves stuck into these kind of, you know, obsessions of polling and obsessions of optics. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> which, which made sense in which there was literally, you know, it was about a push to make sure that John McDonnell was the Chancellor and Diane Abbott was the Home Secretary. When that was an immediate hope, being obsessed with those things had a degree of logic. That's not going to happen now. So, you know, we have to look at things differently. Yeah. And one of those ways of looking at things differently, I think, is, well, we control all of, the, all of these cities. Let's see what we can do in them. And so the significance of municipal socialism, which incidentally was um, invented by the right wing of the Liberal Party in Birmingham in the 1860s, oh. you know, is, is that it shows that there's this very, very long history of this alliance between sort of urban radicals and bureaucracies that have done pretty much everything that's made cities livable in the last 120 years. And... We currently face the situation in which either the left doesn't really pay attention to local government, which is unsurprising because it is very much a fiefdom of the Labour right and it's got a worse toads, but that um, also is very much unaware of of the kind of history of local government and of socialism in local government. Mm. And it's also unaware of the things you can actually do in the present day, of which yeah. Preston shows is not negligible. Um, so it was really about kind of like, okay, we're not going to win power for a long time, but here are the places where we do kind of have power. Let's put all energies into that and try and use that to prefigure something else. So London County Council in the 30s under the Labour right under Herbert Morrison and the Greater London Council in the 80s under the Labour left under Ken Livingston both treated London as this prefigurative kind of microcosm. This is what a Labour government will be like. This is what socialism will be like. And in both cases were phenomenally successful. So much so that in the first case, basically the 1945 government was the LCC on a national scale. And so much so that in the second case, the GLC had to be abolished to make sure it would never happen again. So, you know, it was really about like, let's 
rather than kind of constantly berating ourselves, let's turn inwards a little bit. So there is a challenge to all those listening to this podcast that we need to be, as the left, thinking about new ways of kind of building power at the local level, at the municipal level. And yeah, kind of focusing on on building community power as well. Obviously, we are in a particularly difficult time, given that it is hard for us to meet and discuss and organise. But I definitely think that that should be one of the big projects moving forward over the next four or five years. Yeah, absolutely. That's the hope. When we're allowed out again. <laughs> exactly. Right. Thank you very much, Owen Happily, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah.